Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 14th, 2009, and my guest is Paul Buhite, creator and lead developer of Gmail and founder of FriendFeed, which was recently acquired by Facebook. Paul, welcome to EconTalk. Hi, Russ. Tell us how Gmail got started. Uh, well, basically, uh, they just gave me the task of working on some kind of email or personal information system, and it was um, you know, very... Uh, very much a wide open um, kind of request. There was a there was a feeling that there was a tremendous amount of uh, useful information that was locked away inside of email, um, and that there was a, a lot of room for innovation. Um, but you know, there wasn't necessarily like a clear idea of what we were building from the start. And so I uh, essentially just got started by uh, building a system to search, to index and search my own email, and then. Uh, we iterated from there and just continually added new features, tried new things out, and um, you know, after actually using and iterating on the product for a couple of years, we got to the point where it was something that we felt was ready to launch. How long did that take, roughly? Um, say a couple years, was it? Yeah, it was actually a relatively long process. I To start with, it was just myself working on it, um, and that was uh, late 2001 that I, that I started working on it, and so it was you know, a little bit slow from the start, um, and we explored a lot of different ideas that never uh, that we never launched in the product. Sure. Um, and some of the things did launch, but much later. So, for example, we prototyped um, some of the IM integration that uh, eventually did, didn't make it out into the initial release, but then um, was eventually added about uh, maybe a year later after the. Uh, after the initial launch. So when so, was the initial launch? The initial launch was uh, <laughs> April 1st, 2004, I, I believe. Okay. And that was when you had, you had to be invited? and that Exactly. Was... So, so that was the, it was an invite-only system for actually, uh, I think it may have been a couple of years that yeah. it, was, it was run invite-only. So, and from the, from the, in the very early days, it was actually very difficult to get the invitations. So people were actually selling them on eBay for, um, in some cases, I think even hundreds of dollars. Uh-huh. So that was that was a lot of fun. And how many people were working on it at, at, at its height? Say you said you start off by yourself. How big? Right. How big did it get? Well, you know, by now I think it's a, a fairly substantial team. I don't even know exactly. I, I left uh, Google about three and a half years ago. But at the time that we launched, I would estimate the core team was about a dozen people. Uh-huh. And how did you decide among yourselves how it would emerge, what features it would have, what features it wouldn't have, and what was the process? Well, it was, it was a very iterative process. So we would periodically have you know, a little brainstorming session and just think of lots of different ideas, and also we spent a lot of time talking to people inside of the company about their email needs, their problems, so we might just sit down and um, actually just watch someone use their email for a little while, obviously with, <laughs> with their consent, yeah. and they would just explain the problems that they ran into and, and what systems they used, and that was actually very educational. Um, one of the things we discovered was that a lot of people had essentially two different systems. They had the system they wanted to be using and the system they were actually using. So they would start off by showing us, for example, a, a big complex folder hierarchy at where they would sort you know, all of their mail into, into one of these carefully, uh, carefully named folders. And then I would notice there was something called Inbox 2. And I said, well, what's, you know, what's Inbox 2? They're like, well, and they'd be kind of embarrassed. They're like, well, you know, my Inbox just got too big, so I, <laughs> I renamed it Inbox 2 and made a new one. And it turned out what they were actually doing was just leaving everything in their inbox because they would fall behind. Yes. And so even though they had this intricate folder system, in practice they just had everything sitting there in their inbox. And uh, you know that was one of the 
one of the usage patterns that we thought wasn't very well supported by a lot of the existing mail systems that assumed so, that everyone was going to sort their mail carefully into folders. And that was also more similar to the way that I worked, which was just I would look at email, I would respond to it, or I would just you know, start for later on. And then you know if I'm done with it, I just wanted it to go away into the archive is was, was what we ended up naming it. And then you know, if I need to retrieve it later on, I can just search for it. And so a lot of the initial design was built around that paradigm of instead of having to spend a lot of time um, sorting my mail up front, I could just um, you know, search for it later on if I needed to find it. Yes, that is the way I do it. Uh, I'm not happy with that. Do you have any uh, <laughs> any advice for those out there who have at least dozens, if not hundreds of emails we should have done something else with? Well, I, I think or, maybe um, maybe just get over get over the guilt. You know, yeah. I, I think part of it is there's this perception that there's a right way to do email, and uh, a lot of it just comes down to personality. Some people really love organizing their email, and that's you know that's great. But um, others of us just don't. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that you just have to be comfortable with that. And you know, we tried to build the system to accommodate those people really well because I, I felt like those people had been neglected a lot of times, and so. You know, some of the things that we did, such as the automatic uh, organization into conversations, helps a lot because another thing that we saw people do was spend a lot of time trying to reassemble these conversations. For example, they would sort by subject so that they could find the other messages in the thread. And we said, well, that's, <laughs> that's kind of a wasteful activity. You know, by just putting it all together, it's a, it's a much more efficient experience. I can just read the whole conversation all at once. If I've been away all day and I haven't been reading email and there's been a big discussion... I can catch up very quickly. It hasn't flooded my inbox just because there were, you know, let's say, 30 messages. It's still just one line in my inbox. And so we did a lot of things to try to just make it more automatic and reduce the need for, uh, for manual labor. Which feature are you most proud of? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know if there's, if there's any one thing. I mean, I, I think um, one of the aspects of the product that was most influential is actually the fact that we did it all uh, at the front end, all in JavaScript, which at the time, um, <laughs> you know, no one, people kind of considered webmail to be a toy and that if you wanted a, a serious, you know, if you were serious about email, you had to install a client on your computer, use Outlook or something like that. Yeah. And so by building what was actually a really great uh, email experience right in the browser, I think that a lot of people saw that and said, wow, you know, the, the web is, is real. <laughs> we can build applications on top of this. And I've actually you know, talked to a number of people who are working on different products who, who actually had that experience. Like they looked at it and they're actually inspired by it and said, wow, you know, what else can I do mm-hmm. with, with the JavaScript and you know, all the, the modern browser technology? And um, so I think that's actually one of the most uh, interesting parts of it. And we see a lot of that today where people are building you know, whole office suites on the web and, and um, really every other application as well. It does appear to be the wave of the future. Um, now, is it correct that you were employee number 23 yes. at Google? So that was very early on, presumably. And I'm curious, you were in a funny position as developer of Gmail. You were, it sounds like, a, a fairly standalone entrepreneur within a company, a, a pretty entrepreneurial company. I'm curious. Right. I'm curious how that integration worked out? Um, you know, it, it was occasionally, I think, a, a little bit bumpy just because um, at the time that I started the project, um, most of the rest of the company was entirely uh, focused on search, web search in particular, and, um, and also the advertising. And so a lot of people um, questioned why we were even building Gmail. They thought it was a bad idea, um, you know, an unnecessary distraction. And also, a lot of uh, technically, a lot of the, the infrastructure assumptions turned out to be um, to be wrong. So, for example, when you're crawling the web, if something goes wrong and you lose a few web pages, it isn't it isn't really a big problem because you can just go fetch them again later. But when you're building an email system, obviously, you can't ever lose anything. You need to be very meticulous about keeping track of all of the data and making sure everything updates instantly and you know that 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 those assumptions actually work their way down the entire uh, technology stack. You know, all, all the way down to some of the very low-level decisions in the system are impacted by the need to um, 
be reliable and available all of the time. I'm curious that you said it was a distraction. Um, it doesn't seem to be a distraction, right? You, you, you start off being the whole thing. Then right. may, maybe a dozen people are working on it. You're off somewhere in a corner. You're working on this cool thing, maybe. And if it doesn't work out, that's life. How right. How did that – what happened within the company that made it more complicated than that that you can talk about? Well, you know, um, obviously I thought it was a good thing to do, but um, – <laughs> You know, there's, a, there's, I think, an argument that can be made that, that companies can only do so many things well. And, um, you know, at the time, there was a perception within the company even that we were really just this search technology company. And, and that wasn't universal, obviously, but I think a lot of people had this notion even that, you know, this was back when, when Google was powering um, search for Yahoo and, and uh, a bunch of other sites. And they kind of, a lot of people kind of had this perception, well, we're just providing back-end technology for someone else. And all of a sudden, you know, and so it, within that framework, the, the notion of building this consumer email product doesn't make a lot of sense and um, potentially threatens a lot of those partnerships because, you know, Yahoo probably wasn't too pleased when they, when they discovered Gmail. And so sure. I think people have, issue. you know, reasonable uh, reasons to be, to be concerned. Sure. Uh, but part of the reason it's been successful, besides the fact that, quote, so many people are using it, obviously that's one measure of success. And uh, I'm a user, by the way, and I've pretty much dropped my uh, uh, desktop email version that I've been that I had been using before, desktop program that I've been using. Um, there are two issues that, that that come to mind. One is uh, Gmail was down last week. I, I know right. it has nothing to do with you, but a week or two okay. ago. Gmail went down for a few hours, or it was sporadic. Sure. I think a lot of us who've been relying on it felt a tremor, which is, of course, there are a lot of tremors in our email lives, but Gmail we've always thought is sort of uh, 100% reliable, which is, of course, impossible. But right. the, second, the second aspect from, uh, from Google's ad is the financial side and the use of advertising on, on Gmail. So talk about those two things. Sort of its level of success is, a, is just as a consumer product, terms of reliability and then its financial implications for, for Google. Right. Well, so, I mean, the, the reliability issue is obviously really important. And it's, even though I'm not working there, it's still kind of painful when there's a, when there's a big outage like that. But I think it's also important to keep some perspective on, on reliability. Um, you know, it's very annoying to not be able to access your email for an hour or something like that every couple of months. But, um, you know, that's the reality of, of most systems, even if you're operating your own email, that can happen. And, uh, you know, what I think of just personally, like, the power at my house is, <laughs> is similarly reliable. Sure. Right? Like, I, I lose electricity more often than I lose access to Gmail. Yeah. Um, so, well, once know, provided, that, once provided by usually by a local government and once provided by a profit-motivated uh, corporation. So it goes both yeah. ways. Yeah. Uh. I think I think PG&E is profit oriented too. But, yeah, uh, I guess they are. I, I don't know why I lose power at my house so much, but it, it happens like a couple times a month. And um, but my my point is is that you know I think it, it's one of these issues that people like to bring up a lot because it seems really important. But at a practical level, um, you know the things that actually cause me problems on a day to day basis, it's very rare that that's um, a big issue for me. So I think it's it's something that's important to get right. Um, but at the same time, I think maybe sometimes people overestimate like the significance of, a, of an outage like that. How about um, on the financial side? And I, I, can you be a little um, more specific about what you mean the financial side? Well, I get little ads at the top of my Gmail, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it, they, I, in general, I, like many people, I find ads on the internet uh, somewhat annoying. Right. But, but I found the Gmail ones to be more interesting than annoying. I'm fascinated by how uh, targeted, successfully targeted they are sometimes to my interests, and I click on them every once in a while. Not very often, but much, yeah. much more often than I do than I click on ads on on any other page. So yeah. it's it's a very successful system. Given that I'm a skeptic, that I use it now and then is sure. impressive, and I assume that's sure. generating some serious money for Google. Right. Yeah. I mean, I um, obviously don't even know what the revenue numbers are, but it's exactly as you say. It's one of these things where um, it, it is surprisingly relevant sometimes, and uh, you know the the nature of of that kind of 
uh, directed advertising is that you know the, the payoff is pretty good. I think if you actually deliver uh, an interested customer, so I've actually I've actually bought things off of off of the ads in, in my Gmail a couple of times, mm-hmm. and you know you say, well, it's only been a few times, but the yeah, system a lot of emails that we built there. was was <laughs> you know, sufficiently optimized that you actually don't need to make that much money um, off of ads in order to to cover the cost of operating it. So. Um, and that was obviously another challenge just in building the system is, is keeping the operational costs um, low enough that it can be it can be um, run economically. Uh, we recently did a podcast with John Nye, and we talked about uh, people's levels of trust and comfort interacting anonymously with strangers, and how after an economics crisis like the one we're in the middle of now. It tends to be more skepticism about the virtues of capitalism. People are less comfortable with markets. And one thing that people have raised about Google and Gmail is that my emails being on the Gmail account and Google having uh, a lot of information about me on the server, and that's why you're able to generate those fascinatingly uh, targeted uh, ads or even just sometimes links to articles I'm interested in. Uh, that gives a lot of people the willies. Uh, they find it um, a little bit frightening that there's so much information about me, my from my emails to my searches, in stored somewhere uh, on Google. Um, right. How do you feel about that, especially now that you're not there? Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't um, it doesn't particularly concern me. I mean, I have a lot of broader privacy concerns just about uh, electronic data in general, you know, the fact that uh, my email can all be subpoenaed as part of a, a lawsuit, you know, that concerns me a lot more than um, Google having it because I think Google has a lot of very strong incentives to be careful with the data. You know, if they did something bad, it, it causes a very, a very severe, uh, you know, it causes a lot of damage to their business. If they, if any of my data gets out, so they, I, I, I trust them to, to take care of my data. Um, the problem is, of course, that they are subject to the law, just like everyone else. And you know, a lot of times people don't like that, but it's just a fact. They can't. You know, if if the government shows up and says, uh, you know, we we need this for whatever reason, um, it can be difficult to say no. And uh, and that that concerns me a lot more. And that's just a fact about any system. It isn't. It isn't Google specific. At any time, um, you know, I, I can be legally compelled. And even if I had it on my own server, you know, if people show up and, and there's a and there's a lawsuit and, and it's going to become evidence, you know, I can't just pretend I don't have it. That that wouldn't be. Um, it's awkward. That, that would be. Um, <laughs> I think it's called obstruction of justice. Yeah, so or it's, something. A, it's a negative. It's definitely bad. <laughs> it's something for you don't want to do. Definitely. And, and so and so and I, I think that's actually like a, a bigger concern that. You know, as a lot of our communication moves from um, kind of ephemeral media, medium, you know, like if I just get together and chat in a room with someone, you know, that that doesn't end up becoming evidence. But if all of a sudden I start doing it online and over IM or or email, then suddenly these this offhand conversations could become evidence in a trial. And then, and I think that's actually kind of problematic because uh, of, of two things. One is just that. You know, maybe it wasn't a carefully considered comment because you were just IMing with someone at night. And secondly, um, it it encourages people to destroy that information. You know, a lot of companies have email retention sure. policies where they automatically delete email. And you know, I think that's kind of unfortunate for the world that we're creating incentives to destroy historical records. Yeah, no, there's definitely a trade-off there. It's an interesting point. But I'm going to go back to the to your remark that you trust Google. Obviously. You don't literally trust them. You just assume the incentives are in place that there is no Google. I also trust. literally trust them. I, I, I mean, I know the people there, right. well, and, yeah. and they're good people. But you don't know all the people involved with the potential access, and so you sure. assume there's some kind of um, firewall slash security procedure in place to keep people from rifling through folks' email and all that. Right, right, right. And and that's something that you have though with any service provider. Um, you know, even if you're, let's say, within a company, a lot of times people debate, like, is it safe to have our email stored, let's say, on Google systems? And the point that oftentimes gets overlooked is, is it safe to have it internally where there's, you know, whatever the local sysadmin who 
might have personal issues with some of the people in the company or sure. whatever else, right? Sure. And so I, I actually think that in many cases it's safer just because, um, you know, that is what they do and they have some of the best people in the world doing it. So uh, You are credited with coming up with the phrase, don't be evil. Uh, is that true as far as you know? And does it have any significance other than it's kind of cool? Um, yeah, yeah, I, that is it is true. Um, it was uh, uh, there was a, a company meeting, uh, I think, sometime maybe in, in early two thousand one, um, where we were trying to decide on, on company values. And you know, typically corporations come up with some really bland values that are completely forgettable. And, yep. and um, I, I wanted something a little bit uh, a little bit more interesting, and also like that would make maybe make people a little bit uncomfortable and make people think. Um, and, and I don't know that somehow that just that just came up, and then um, at first people didn't really take it seriously. But <laughs> myself and another engineer, Amit Patel, managed to keep it alive long enough that it um, kind of took on a life of its own. And and I do actually think that it has a lot of value. I mean, beyond just being kind of this cute phrase, the thing that I think is is so valuable about it is that it actually gives everyone in the company. Uh, license to question the decisions. Um, and I mean, I've literally been in a meeting where someone said, but wait, is this evil? And they were serious. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there would be like a little debate about whether it was evil or not. Yeah. Um, and I think that process is very important because too often in um, some large organization, there's this attitude, well, you know, it's not your job to worry about that. Your job is to do what you're told. So, you know, shut up and like do your job. Right. And, and you can so quit if you fact, want, but it's better to question than quit if you could stop it. <laughs> sure, exactly. And so just the fact that everyone um, essentially has permission to stop and question things, I think, um, creates a more thoughtful organization. Does it have a formal, is it a motto or just um, it's, catchphrase? Um, what is it? It was, it was one of the uh, corporate values. There was like oh, it was a list of okay. them or something. Yeah. But it's the only one that anyone remembers. Yeah, no, it would be. Um, I put it in the pantheon with, you know, uh, Ritz-Carlton's uh, motto is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. I've always thought that was uh, clever, memorable, and it, and it yeah. does motivate a lot of behavior there. Uh, they all know yeah. it at least which is because it's memorable. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's important for things to be memorable. Um, you know, there's only so many things that are going to be on your mind at any time, and you can create some, some – uh, carefully crafted statement that has all of your values tucked in, but if it's forgettable, it doesn't matter, right? Or long, um, which means it's forgettable. It's Don't be able yeah. to short, too, which is really good. Yeah. Um, how did Google, when did you, you said you left around uh, 2006, is that right? Uh, yes, May 2006. So when did, to be employee number 23, roughly when did you get there? Um, uh, June 1999. So roughly uh, six years. Uh, Almost seven years. <laughs> and how did the company change while you were there? Uh, well, a lot. It got a lot bigger. A lot, yeah. Um, you know, it, it was uh, obviously just a little startup when I when I joined, and I had fairly low expectations, to be honest. Um, you know, they were... The search market was pretty crowded back in '99. Sure. There were some really big companies like Lycos. Alta Vista. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean all of the portals, but yeah, Alta Vista. That's who I meant. I think Alta Vista <laughs> was really the the the, um, the giant in search, and they had you know hundreds of engineers. They had they had just spent I think like a hundred million dollars on some kind of marketing campaign. So clearly they had money to burn. Uh, they had huge traffic, and you know. The, thing that I didn't quite understand is I was just thinking to myself, you know, I don't know how this little company is ever going to make it against this this behemoth because, you know, if they start to get traction, all the Vista will just copy whatever they're doing, right? Um, but the people seem pretty smart, and so I thought that it would be a, a good learning experience to go uh, join this little startup and, and um, watch them get crushed or whatever. Yeah, sure. No, he'd get some. Uh, and, you know, and, and there were smart people, so there was a lot to learn, um, technically at least, and it was a to me, a very interesting problem. I, I really like, um, I just really like the access to information and, and all of that. So, uh, so I went in with, with fairly low expectations for things, but I, I found that I just really liked working there. Um, and I previously worked at a number of big companies. So immediately prior to Google, I worked at Intel, which is uh, the opposite. 
Yeah, a very time. big company. The mm-hmm. a big sea of gray cubicles, um, and it just I, I didn't. Um, it just wasn't for me. Uh, and, and so it was. It was actually a really great experience to, to go over to this little startup where everyone was excited and and um, you know just an energy to the place. And uh, and so I, that was just a, a really great experience. And then obviously, you know, I had so many smart people that I, I was able to just learn. Um, so much about systems and about product and, and everything else. So I, I like to uh, sometimes also just compare it to a sort of postgraduate education. Sure. You know, I can't I can't imagine just from a strictly educational standpoint. I can't imagine a, a better experience. And how did it change over the time you were there? Was it how much of that excitement and educational value persisted? Do you think for new employees? Well, that culture is hard to keep. Yeah, I mean it's very difficult because. Uh, you know, they, they've innovated on a lot of fronts. I mean, they've created some very interesting products and very interesting technologies. Um, I, I think a lot of the organizational methods are, are relatively conventional, and, um, you know, there's a, they brought in a lot of experienced managers from other companies who kind of implemented the same, same strategies that things were done elsewhere. And inevitably, um, there's, there's just a, a lot of incentives that, that change over time. You know, when it's a little startup, it's kind of like uh, everyone's in it together, right? Because if the company fails, like you all fail. Sure. And uh, you know everyone. When, when you're in a bigger company, the incentives get a little more complex because, um, you know, certainly like the stock price isn't a very good um, proxy for anything because you could be creating some cool new product, but, you know, really the stock price is going to be driven by like something in the ad market. <laughs> And if you're not working on ads, you, you probably have like very little direct impact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it becomes very difficult to to kind of create the right incentives for risk taking. Um, and ultimately, I think over time, what happens in a big company is you get lots of negative incentives. So people are incentivized not to screw up, not yeah. to cause disasters, but the positive incentives tend to disappear. So you know, if there's if there's something you could do that maybe has a 10% chance of creating a, a billion-dollar business and a 90% chance of making you look dumb, you know, which one are you going to do? Yeah. And, and even if you're willing to, to kind of gamble with looking stupid, is your, is your boss going to go, go ahead with that? And ultimately, those incentives um, over time have an effect on, on how, how people make decisions, the kinds of people who, who work in an organization, and it all um, feeds back on itself. So you don't think they're going to take over the world? Well, I think they'll continue doing very well. Uh, I mean, they, not the they same have, thing. <laughs> they have a lot of great products, and they're continuing to come out with good stuff. I sure. mean, you have to remember that their primary competition, in many cases, is like Microsoft, <laughs> and um, you know whatever whatever big company issues they have, I think a lot of their competitors have them uh, to a much greater extent. No, for sure. But I always think it's funny how people just assume that growth rates are going to continue. Right. And it's hard. It's hard. Things slow you down. Monitoring, yeah. oversight, the culture changes. You can't control it anymore. You couldn't control it at the beginning much anyway, and then suddenly yeah. you're in a different kind of company, and it's a lot harder to change. Get ahead. Yeah, it's a very difficult problem. Um, but I, I think a lot of it goes back to um, people are still trying to impl- apply industrial era methods and thinking to um, – these new problems, which are completely unlike running a factory. Yeah. In a factory, you can easily uh, measure and monitor everyone's output, and, and it's all, you can be very um, scientific about it. And uh, in, a, uh, in a more creative endeavor, like creating new products, all of that, it, none, none of that works. You, you, can't, you can't measure people's output very well. You can't, you know, the, the entire incentive system has to, be, has to be changed. The entire management system needs to be changed. Well, let's talk about that for a sec before we move on. I, you know, it is hard to measure, but my guess is when you were um, leading that Gmail team and you had 12 people working for you, uh, if one of them wasn't doing a very good job, even though you might not be able to quantify it, you probably knew it. Right. So actually, that's one of the, the things that I think is maybe needs a little more attention is in practice when you look at these teams, the people on the team know who the really good people are and, and who's really contributing and who's not. And that's 
that's the most valuable information I think is is really to bring it down to the team level and and have people um, essentially picking who they want to work for work with and work for and and um, you know instead of instead of taking kind of the top down measurement approach actually having people um, evaluating their peers to a greater extent and I don't mean like writing some big yeah. evaluation I mean actually choosing you know who do I want to work with because that's actually a really good indicator, right? Sure. If you, if you just think about which people do you want to work with, well, you want to work with generally the people who get things done. It depends. Um, well, it depends. You want to be on a good team. Well, <laughs> depends what kind of person what you are. Yeah. It depends what your incentives are, but if you're the kind of person who likes to create new products sure. and, 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 you know, ship things and everything else, you want to work with other people like that. And, and, and also people who have complementary skill sets. Yep. And so it also is a big issue because there's, Oftentimes, this mindset: well, this is a you know, level four engineer. This person is capable of the following things. But in practice, there's just a tremendous amount of variation. Each person has you know, a different personality, a different set of uh, skills and strengths. And building effective teams is actually a, a pretty tricky thing because you you kind of want that that perfect mix of, of personalities and abilities. It's a classic problem in economics of how to measure output, you know, team output excuse me, how to attribute team output to individuals. And I, I think the, uh, I think it's really a classic problem, as you say, if you're stuck in a top-down world. Uh, when you allow people to more freely associate, people have a lot of information, um, a la Hayek, about who's doing what and, and who knows what and who's pleasant. I mean, there's subtle things that aren't, uh, output's not the only literal thing you care about. You care about who you want to spend time with and, Right. Who compromises in the right times and not in the wrong, you know, not in the wrong ones, and right, exactly. And of course, of that does ultimately reflect on the team output. You yes. know, even if someone is very productive, if they end up um, causing everyone else to quit, they're probably a net negative, right? Yep. And of course, it's sometimes hard to figure who that is. That is from the outside, but as you say, from the inside, I think usually uh, people have a pretty good idea. There are exceptions, obviously. It's not as right. clean as we might uh, as we might hope. Right. So I was going to ask you one other thing about. Um, oh yeah, Bing. Right. Uh, is it a threat to Google? You know, I, I don't. I don't know. Um, it, it isn't obviously a threat when I've when I've looked at it, but I, I think it, it is uh, clear that they're they're starting to take it more seriously. You know, it, it, it's the first time I've used one of their products and actually thought, wow, this is actually it's pretty you know, good. Pretty good, <laughs> right? So. Oh, their previous attempts of you know you look at it and you're like wow are they even are they even trying? But this this time I, I think they're at least putting out a credible product. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of technology inside of Google that people just aren't even aware of, and so it can be hard for people to know how far behind they are. Yeah, right. Um, it's true. Until it's too late. <laughs> until they really try. You know, that happened with Yahoo where when they were redoing their ad system, they had this Panama project and. People in the press were talking about. Well, once they come out with this, they'll they'll be able to match Google. But um, you know what they were coming out with was something that was equivalent to what Google had you know three years prior. <laughs> and so they, they were, it was just a kind of hopeless endeavor in that in that sense. And the way they were developing it was um, at least from the stories I've heard was a little bit of a disaster. So it was pretty clear they weren't going to catch up. But no, it is a classic perception problem. I mean, it's a fascinating thing actually that. Uh, people always say, well, they've matched, you know, they, they've come up with the new iPod. It's just as good as an iPod, as if Apple is just sitting there counting their money and, and right. hope, hoping that no one else is going to compete with them. Right. It, it does happen, right? Sometimes an organization yeah. gets fat and happy yeah. and, and uh, doesn't innovate and does get caught or passed, but usually they're pretty worried about their franchise and they're working right, hard absolutely. on it. That's a really Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's very hard if 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 a company has a a, uh, a lead the way Google has and they remain focused on it and, and they're you know, able to continually innovate. I think that's tremendously difficult to to overcome that lead. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try. It's, there's 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 just more uh, there's easier easier uh, lower, lower hanging fruit elsewhere. Yeah, but of course I'm always glad someone is trying because that'll keep people oh, no, on their good. toes. Oh I mean I. I, I Competition is a great thing, and I hope that they have success. I mean, I I think it will be good for everyone, including Google, to have 
um, credible competitors. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to – let's leave Google behind um, to the extent we can in 2009. So you left Google. Is FriendFeed the thing you did next? Uh, the thing I did immediately next was, was uh, just take some time off. So I, I, That's a um, good idea. Yeah, I, I took off for maybe about a year and a half or a year. And, um, and then uh, my friend Sanjeev Singh, who is the uh, second person on Gmail, um, decided to leave Google as well. So we started just talking about you know, what's next and uh, decided that it was time to start a new company. So uh, we started just working on a few different ideas and just kind of getting together and talking about things. And um, the other thing we did was just keep an eye on what other people we knew who were um, exiting Google or other other sure. things and, and looking for new opportunities. Talented folks. And um, yeah, Brett Taylor and Jim Norris, who are two of the main people behind the Google Maps product, um, were leaving and to start a startup of their own. And so we just started having dinner with them uh, you know, maybe a couple times a week and just chatting about different ideas. And, and they were kind of doing the same thing of just prototyping things and figuring out what to do next. And um, ultimately, we ended up deciding to that we had a, a lot of the same goals and, and ideas in terms of the kind of company we wanted to start and the kind of products we wanted to build and just the, the underlying philosophy and um, ultimately ended up deciding to, to just form a single company, which was Frenzy. I want to hear more about that, but before we do talk about it, I wanted to pry into that year and a half um, off or year off uh, as much as I can for a sec. Did, did you think you were going to take that much time? Did you plan a specific time, or did you just say, "I'm going to take some time off until I get excited about something"? You know, I didn't have a specific plan, um, but I've always been interested in in uh, startups, so I did have, I guess, some hope of eventually starting one. But at the time, I really just needed to take some time off. Um, I had been a fairly eventful couple of years. You know, we launched Gmail, this Google IPO, and all of that, and that was very exciting. Um, there are also some other more difficult things. My my daughter, um, my first first child was born the uh, the prior year and had a lot of uh, medical issues, so I'd um, taken off time for that. And um, also, my brother had uh, gotten cancer and died, and so it was just like it was just good to take some time off. <laughs> uh, but after you know, after uh, a year or so of that, doing nothing got a little bit boring, um, and I was very interested in actually working on something that I cared about and could really focus on. Did you really do nothing? Well, I hung out at home. (laughs) Well, it's pleasant. I just, it just, sorry for prying and I'm sorry about your brother. I I just was, most people don't get to take a year off. um, Yeah. Right. It's a interesting life experience that most of us don't have access to. Um, So you, but you turned eventually to socializing with these talented folks and, Mm -hmm. um, how did FriendFeed come about? And for people who don't know what it is, tell us what it is. So uh, FriendFeed was actually, the, the initial prototype was uh, something that Brett did kind of on the side while they were working on some other ideas um, just because he, he kind of wanted to keep track of uh, his friends. You know, they had left Google and just wanted a tool for, for keeping, um, kind of keeping up to date with, with all the people he knew. Uh, and it evolved from there. And so what it ultimately became um, was a, a tool for sharing things with people and so and having little discussions. So, for example, you know, if I write a blog post or something, I can put it on friend feed. My friends will all see it right away. And you know, a lot of times there's like little comments or you know, maybe I read a news story. Like this morning, um, uh, one of the startups I had invested in called Mint uh, was acquired by um, Intuit. And so I just post a little message that says, you know, congratulations to Aaron and the Mint team, and a link to the TechCrunch story. And then, you know, my friends all see it, and they like it or, like, leave a comment. So what's the difference between FriendFeed and Twitter? Uh, in practice, FriendFeed is a, a much more conversational medium. So, you know, the, because of the comments, I, I might post uh, even a question, and there'll be, like, a big, long discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the issues we did encounter was that uh, you know, both products evolved over time and in a somewhat convergent manner. So you know, Twitter started out just being about status updates. 
And, um, you know, obviously that appeals to some people, but it also has, uh, it's a little bit limited. But over time, the users of Twitter have kind of evolved it to be a lot of other things. And so there's actually a lot of link sharing that goes on in Twitter as well. You bet. Where people find, you know, an interesting link and they just tweet it out to their friends. And, um, I mean, that was certainly like one of the competitive issues we, we faced was that over time people started asking exactly what you asked, which is like, how is this different from Twitter? And, you know, at a feature level, there's a lot of differences, like the comments, the likes, there's images. It's uh, kind of a richer experience, but it is a, in a, from a mind share perspective, you know, people have kind of like different buckets for different products. Yeah. And, um, it was a problem that we were kind of ending up in a similar bucket with a much larger product. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that for a sec because it's such an interesting phenomenon that um, you say Twitter started off as a status uh, updating phenomenon. And uh, again, as I mentioned recently, uh, yeah, we're on Twitter at EconTalker, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K-E-R, if you want to follow us. But I find it you know, fascinating that people who are – I'm 54. I'll be 55 in a few days, but – People above the age of maybe 30 or so or 35 think Twitter is about telling people what you had for breakfast, and they can't understand right. why anybody would possibly uh, use it. And, of course, some people are interested in what other people, their friends have for breakfast. That's that's perfectly fine, but I use it mainly as a miniature blogging platform, right. um, which is extremely useful, and, and, and it has – the character limit of it is um, – Bracing it, it encourages uh, brevity and thoughtfulness, so I, I, right. I find that a plus most of right. the time. But as you say, it isn't how it started. Uh, so, right. Right. so you had this challenge, and what's what has happened in the meanwhile? Why have you been successful? And given that you had a very large, serious competitor, right? Well, I mean, uh, to be fair, they've been more successful than we were. So, but yeah, I mean, we, we always had uh, a fairly loyal user base. A lot of people were interested, as I mentioned, in the conversational aspect of it. So, you know, Twitter, you can at reply people, but um, those at replies are all kind of independent. Yeah, they're all and public so because, and weird. I don't, I've not caught yeah, them really. <laughs> because of the, the comments on FriendFeed, what you end up having is a, is a, a discussion which can sometimes have you know, hundreds of comments. And the, the people are, the comments are all aware of each other, so it's more of a it's more like a bunch of people in a room talking together, versus, you know, you just kind of hear back independent messages from different people. So, so it really changes the dynamic of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, in practice, it ends up being uh, a fairly different service in many ways, but it, it does have a lot of that same um, kind of uh, you know micro micro blogging aspect to it. You know, mm-hmm. like yesterday, I posted. A picture of my new shoes because <laughs> uh-huh. I bought some of the uh, you know, these, these Vibram, uh, uh, they're, they're toe shoes, um, and so I, I, I tried those. I was running around the block in them. And, How's that uh, working for you? Pretty good. It's, it's, a, it's interesting. There's a book called uh, Born to Run, which I think a lot of people have been reading recently. It's, uh, it's a pretty interesting book, but he... Uh, uh, is it about the it, shoes? You end, up, you end up wanting to buy the shoes and uh-huh. giving it a try. <laughs> Interesting. And, and you you move forward on your toes. Is that the idea of them? Yeah. The the basic uh, story starts off with this. This the author has terrible foot uh, or and leg pains when he runs, and whenever he goes to the doctor, the doctor just tells him, "Well, you know, you weren't meant to run. People like you. He's like a big guy, I guess. So, you know, you're not you're not meant to run." So he. He just kind of keeps investigating this problem, and he ends up uh, meeting these other people who have encountered the same thing and ultimately discovered that the problem, at least for them, was caused by the uh, padding in their shoes and, and the fact that it isolating um, your feet from the, from the environment actually causes you to run in the wrong way and put stress in the wrong places. And so by actually having less uh, insulation, you your body gets better feedback from the environment. You run in a different style where you're, you're not landing on your heel, you're landing more on um, the other parts of your feet. And uh, consequently, like, it just works. Well, <laughs> and so you can run hundreds of miles without, without causing damage to your body. It sounds like a hoax, but okay. It's interesting. It, it's a very interesting <laughs> book. I mean, it, 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 
it's uh, I, I mean, it isn't at all strict, strictly like a research paper or something. Oh, I understand. It's more That's of an entertaining book, but yeah, no, it has a lot of a lot of very interesting uh, insights. And I think it's actually um, an interesting thing just to think about, like this notion of of uh, the dangers of, of insulating ourselves from reality too much. Where uh, <laughs> I mean, this kind of loops back to some of the organizational things as well. Where I, I, yeah. I think like sometimes there's a tendency to to put up too many barriers between ourselves and reality, and and consequently we end up making bad decisions because we're not really getting the right feedback. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. So is, we don't do product placement here, but uh, or, or and we don't have any sponsors. But what's what kind of shoes are they called? What are they called? Uh, Vibram. Vibram. Like, okay. Yeah. Um, if you look at my friend feed, it's friendfeed.com slash Paul. Okay. You see a picture of my feet. <laughs> well, we look forward to putting that up on the uh, putting it up on the a link to this to this conversation. But getting back to friend feed, so Facebook uh, acquired uh, friend feed last month, I think. Right. And I'm curious, what do you think? Do you know what they're going to do with it? And because in my mind, which of course I'm not a heavy duty social networker, I'm a very very modest social networker. Uh, but in my mind, Facebook and Twitter are kind of competing for how people pay attention to these micro-conversations. So right. how is FriendFeed going to – is it going to be part of Facebook or is it going to be standalone? Uh, well, for the time being, the, the fight is pretty much going to just stay the way it is. Um, the team is uh, presently uh, spending a lot of time just learning about the inside of Facebook, meeting all of the teams and um, basically figuring out what the next steps are uh, in terms of bringing a lot of what we've learned, building FriendFeed to Facebook and how best to, to integrate that knowledge and experience. Um, you know, I mentioned we kind of had this issue with FriendFeed that the, the Twitter community had evolved that product to be a little bit more like what we were building. Um, simultaneously, there was the same issue that Facebook as a product was kind of evolving in the same direction. Yep, so they sure. added, um, so they were, they, they, they were all uh, keeping an eye on, on FriendFeed as well. Um, and so they added comments and likes and a lot of these same features that, that we had. And so I think that the, we were very much on a convergent path where um, although FriendFeed and Facebook are presently very different products, we had a lot of the same ideas about the kind of product that we ultimately wanted to build. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, since we're kind of both headed to the same destination, there is uh, uh, I thought that was a good opportunity to work together. So, do I need to get on FriendFeed? Sure, give it a try. Oh, another one. What? I mean, you don't have to, but I mean, if you're interested. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm half serious and half yeah. joking. That, that, but it's the, a very easy thing to try out, too. By the way, there's um, just a, a one-click button on the homepage if you want. You can click on uh, Twitter or Facebook, and it'll just pull in your, um, your information from there. You don't you don't have to uh, you don't have to do much. I don't have to do anything independently of those two if I don't want to. Right, you can just click on one of those buttons, and then you're logged in, and you see uh, all of your friends what they're sharing. And I just get more of a, a different kind of interface for interacting with those those comments of theirs. Um, yeah, it's probably easiest if you if you give it a try. It's, it, it's a it ends up being actually a different things for different people, um, in part because if your friends are very active on FriendFeed, it's a very different thing versus if they've just signed in once and maybe connected a couple of their accounts, but don't come back. Um, and so, you know, naturally, like a lot of my friends are, are fairly active on FriendFeed, so it ends up being a different experience from uh, maybe someone else who just comes along and doesn't know anyone there. Well, I'm kind of asking about it naively on purpose, because I was told by somebody that what FriendFeed does is combine Facebook and Twitter so I don't have to go to both. But that's not. Um, but that's not the way you conceive of it, obviously. No, not, not really. And, and that was again um, maybe one of the challenges we faced was that there is this this notion that it that FriendFeed was an aggregator, um, and that's not really the the model that we had for it. But it was it was how a lot of people perceived it. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something that maybe we didn't do a good enough job with communication. Um, the the core concept that it was based around is, is sharing. And so the notion of the, uh, the aggregation features was, well, if you're already sharing things somewhere else, 
It should just automatically show up here. So if you already have a blog, instead of having to you know make a blog post and then go to FriendFeed and say, hey, I have a new blog post, you know, why not just bring it in automatically? Well, I really like that. <laughs> and so, right, and That's so great. you know that that logically seemed like a seemed like a nice feature to have, but the downside of that is that it creates this notion that well, it's just this thing that aggregates. Okay, so it's more than that, though. So it is that, right? It right? does a lot more than that, but it is it is a you know always it's a very interesting kind of business issue of uh, sometimes features maybe even hurt you, sure, because it changes how people perceive uh, what it is, makes and, it harder to communicate what it is, is. yeah. Um, I like when you said it's a it's a way to share stuff. You know, one of the things we've been talking about recently, and I think about a lot, is how technology changes our lives. And sharing is a really maybe the when it's in the top three for what humans do, and technology helps us share. And I think there's a backlash, especially among older folks, about technology as a anti-human device, and yet. On the other right. side, it's the ultimate in helping us be more human. Right. Um, where do you think this is going? What do you think it's going to look like down the road? We, it, the explosion's unbelievable in terms of you know online sharing. Right. Um, an example I like is just the number number of photographs on the web and what we can look at and share with each other about what we're up to. It's you know it's in the billions, um, tens of billions soon, if not already. Well, I'm sure it's already in that. So where do you th- what do you think of that? Where's it going? Yeah, I think it's just uh, we're just going to see more of it essentially for for quite a while. I mean, every time you lower the uh, the friction essentially to sharing, people share more more stuff. So you know, like now that the, the cell phones all have pretty good cameras, or at least the popular ones do, people start taking pictures with their cell phone and just sharing it with their friends. And um, you know, I think that that really helps connect people uh, in a way that wasn't previously practical, just because. You know, if, if you wouldn't like get out your film camera, take a picture of like something funny you saw, get it developed, mail it to your friends in an envelope. Like it just doesn't make sense. But it helps connect people, especially who are uh, maybe more distant. So yeah, I mentioned like when my daughter was born, she was uh, in the hospital for quite a while. Uh, you know, I, that was the first time I started blogging. Is I, I started up a blog kind of immediately so that I could just post updates about you know how she was doing, so that I didn't have to. You know, go talk to each person in my sure. family, repeat the right. the, uh, the difficulties of the day. And so I just started every day posting a picture of, of my daughter and a, you know, a little status update about how she's doing. Um, and that was really uh, and that was really good, I think, for my family. It was actually my, my mother, who who'd never really used computers before, all of a sudden needed to get a computer sure. so that she could keep up to date on her uh, granddaughter. Um, you know, it's it, I think it's like a great example of just the, the positive uh, power of technology. Yeah, no, it's an amazing, uh, it's an incredible thing. Uh, uh, any speculation on besides more? We're obviously going to do a lot more, uh, especially as technology makes it cheaper to do even more. But I think the texture of it's going to change. Um, certainly, I mean, as as uh, as I mentioned, like just as the as the friction decreases, the kinds of things that people share change because all of these things that, you know, like I gave the example with the shoes before, and then we had this whole conversation about shoes. And the only reason that happened was because I was sitting in my backyard and it was very easy for me to suddenly post a picture of my feet. <laughs> and, you know, that's the kind of thing that would never have happened before because it wasn't important enough for me to you know, spend a lot of time on, but it was something that, you know, 30 seconds to, to share, like, hey, I got these new shoes and it worked well this time. Yeah, product with friends of it. or with whoever else is, is interested. That really changes um, just the kinds of things we share. And it also just changes, uh, uh, you know, in this case, like your relationship with brands. Um, you know, the entire way that I think the um, consumer economy works is changing because previously it was all about just telling people what they needed to think and throwing a lot of money at it. Now you actually have to, um, you know, make your customers happy. <laughs> yeah, you can't just lure them in and 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 rely on on their ignorance. And that now, you know, if, if I don't like something, um, I'm going to tell other people about it. And uh, you know, like Yelp is a great example of this. My my wife is really into Yelp, 
and she uh, got breakfast some, at some restaurant, and they didn't have bananas. And she mentioned that in her Yelp review, that she was disappointed they were out of bananas. And then the owner of the restaurant contacted her, I think, via Yelp directly and apologized and said, oh, please, you know, next time you come back, I promise there will be bananas. And you know, that, kind of, that kind of service is really great. And it's the kind of thing that um, I think, again, just shows the, the positive potential of this, this technology. Yeah, in the old days, if you wrote a letter complaining, you'd sometimes get a nice letter back with a gift certificate for you know breakfast at the restaurant, and they'd hoped right. it wasn't purely you know kindness. They were hoping you'd tell your friends you had a good, you had a bit. They were assuming you probably told a few people you had a bad experience, so they're hoping now they you'll say you had a good one. Right, right. Uh, but when you tell a few thousand, it makes a big, or a few tens of thousands, it, it does right. make a bigger, bigger and splash. And it just changes the kinds of people who are who are doing these things. So you know if you're writing a letter to a restaurant like I don't know that's just not the kind of thing that I think most people would do you're probably they like a, a sort of extreme personality yep. you'd have to have uh, a really bad breakfast yeah and you <laughs> you maybe um, yeah I mean you're, you're just not a normal person probably or yeah, or you just have an awful lot of time on your hands whereas now you know a lot of these things are so easy that just normal people are doing it as part of their everyday life and so it changes the kinds of feedback that you get because it isn't just crazy old cranks who don't have anything else to do or whatever, right? It's, it's just like regular people who take a few seconds to, to um, you know, report their experience or, or I guess in the case of Yelp, there's, there's a whole social element where people like to, um, to, you know, they just enjoy writing reviews. And of course, some people abuse it. Uh, you know, they I, I've noticed that in some, you know, everywhere from Amazon book reviews to restaurant reviews, people will sometimes try to plant a negative review uh, right, of course. for strategic purposes. It, it'll be interesting to see how the culture of authenticity evolves in this world because it's extremely important to helping it work well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the, I think, really the power of uh, something like Facebook is because it has a culture of real identities and real relationships, you start to actually see the truth, <laughs> yeah. right? So you know, instead of that's just important. seeing a review from someone... You know, skater girl or whatever. Yeah, you actually uh, <laughs> see, oh, it's from my friend. Yep. And that and that's a lot more meaningful. And it also makes it harder for people to to do these fake reviews or whatever else because it either shows up with some fake name or you see like oh, this person is like friends with the owner or or whatever it is. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah, it's a real plus. There's a real art to the inauthentic, um, seemingly authentic review, and not everybody can pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times they're pretty obvious yeah. on Amazon. Yeah, on both I, directions. You know, the rave yeah. review of the book by the mom is pretty transparent usually. Um, we're almost out of time. What is uh, next for you? Are you going to take a year off or are you going to do something else? Do you have any ideas? Uh, no, I'm, I'm working here at Facebook, so I'm, I'm, uh, this is what's next for me. <laughs> so there's, I'm, I'm, uh, I, part of the reason that the deal made sense was because there are a lot of really exciting opportunities here. I mean, I think uh, Facebook is a company that has the potential to be um, extremely influential, much in the same way that, that Google has been, um, not just in terms of business success, but in terms of um, essentially setting the standard for the valley. And so that's uh, that's a pretty interesting opportunity. Yeah, well, both of them change our lives in all kinds of mostly, I think, very, very good ways, how we interact yeah. with each other. Uh, well, let's close with a discussion about the valley. Um You've been there a while. What do you think of Silicon Valley, and how has it changed uh, while you've been there, and where do you think it's going? Uh, well, let's see. I, I, I don't know if I've been here long enough to give a, a long-term report. I've been here, I guess, uh, I moved out. I, uh, I was here in 97 and then, and then moved out permanently in 98. Um, obviously, you know, the biggest changes have just been the, the, the bubble you know, at the end of, of the 90s where – Anyone could start a company and then mysteriously IPO <laughs> without any real product or anything at all. Um, and so I think it's, it's a place that is very dynamic um, just because you know, the economy changes so much and, and uh, you know, the, the swing of technology is, is very quick. So the kinds of companies that people are founding changes. But the core of it, I think, is, is, seems pretty solid. It's a place where people are very comfortable with the notion of taking risks and just trying things that may not work. And that's, I think, really the, the heart of it. The thing that makes it work is the fact that, um, you know, like my quitting a job at 
you know, safe big company Intel and joining some little startup like Google wasn't seen as a bad idea. Right, sure. <laughs> Whereas I think a lot of other places in the world, people would be like, what are you doing? You had a good job. Why would you go? Like I actually had that experience, I think, early on where people outside of Silicon Valley didn't quite understand what had happened because they perceived working at Intel to be a very good thing. And now for some reason I'm working at like a little company that they'd never like, heard well, of. Did you, yeah. yeah, did you get fired? Like yeah. what happened, right? <laughs> Why would you go work for some company that I've never heard of when you had a, a job at this like super respectable world world famous company? Um, and, and so that mindset is very important because you know a lot of these decisions are, are difficult. People might be on the fence: should I stay at my current job? Should I should I try this crazy new startup or, or whatever else? And the perception of the people around you is really important. You know, are they going to respect your decision or are they going to think that you're foolish? You're, you're, and that, that, that can very easily make the difference. My guest today has been Paul Buhite. Paul, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, for more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.